Well, I have been so encouraged hearing all of these uh, testimonies from various uh, missionaries that uh, we've been involved in uh, seeing around the world. And I want to remind you of something as we do that, and that is that we're not hearing just simply about something they are doing. We're hearing about what we are doing. Uh, We send people out to be our hands and feet and eyes and mouths for the sake of the gospel around the world, but it takes all of us. It's our collective effort as a congregation to fulfill the Great Commission. And so as you hear about these things, don't, don't keep them distant from you. You're hearing about something someone is doing. No, you're hearing about uh, what we're doing as a church family to impact the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning to, second, uh, to, to Titus chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15, which is the entire section in this series that we uh, have on Christmas clarity, but we're going to focus on Ch- Titus chapter 2, verse 12 this morning. Please stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to worship together, to open Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You would change us, that You would transform us. Lord, we come here today asking to see You. To see You more clearly. To love You more fiercely. For our relationship with You to be strengthened. And we come asking for those who are not yet in Christ that this would be the day by by Your sovereign grace You would bring them to Yourself. But Lord, I pray that as we leave this worship area, we will never be the same because we've come and sang and prayed and been changed by Your very words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, silence is destabilizing. Uh, There's a reason why the phrase is used, awkward silence. A lot of times when there's complete silence in a group of people around, somebody will just start saying something, anything, anything to break the silence. We, we're made in such a way where, where silence is an awkward thing. It's a destabilizing thing. It's an anxiety-producing thing. We want to hear from people. People that we love, that we know, that we care about. If we don't hear from them for long periods of time, we begin to be troubled. We, we just want to, you'll hear somebody say, I just wanted to hear your voice. Silence is 
difficult. You know, um, yesterday, uh, uh, Michelle Manning, our administrative assistant, uh, was her funeral for John Manning, her husband, and the burial was in Manchester, Kentucky. And so Pastor Nate and I and Judy headed up there to, to be a part of that graveside service. And they had handed out maps on how to get there, but uh, I get lost everywhere I go. So, you know, I just always follow uh, the GPS no matter what. In fact, my family says the only voice that I obey completely is the voice of the GPS. And so Judy suggested that we follow the map. Seemed like a bad idea. I just plug it in and go. Well, the more rural area you go to, the more GPS is a little less effective. So we found ourselves lost uh, as we were trying to get to the graveside service and driving around and we kept driving and is it this way, is it that way? And finally I said, you know, I'm just going to try to call Pastor Nate. Well, we had wound up not in Manchester, but in Rogersville. And in Rogersville, there's not great cell service. And so I couldn't call Pastor Nate. It wouldn't let me. I couldn't use my GPS. I couldn't, do, I couldn't talk to anybody but Judy, and she wasn't real keen on talking to me at that moment. <laughs> and so we're driving around, and I'm, this is a funeral. I have to get there. And I'm like, just the, the feeling, I can't call anybody, I can't talk to anybody, I can't communicate with anybody to, to try to figure out where we need to get. And um, the gas light was on too, but we had at least 60 more miles to go with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we kept driving and finally I did get Pastor Nate and finally I did figure out how to get there. But the cut off from everybody, the silence was awkward. You know, as the New Testament opens, there had been 400 years of prophetic silence. Think about that. These glorious promises of Messiah, the the telling of the story, the the unfolding of the revelation, the, the testimony to what Messiah will come and do. And then all of a sudden, there are 400 years of prophetic silence. But all of that silence is shattered by the birth of a baby. All of that prophetic silence is shattered by the incarnation, the the infleshing of the promised Messiah. The one who was promised to come has come. And now the voice of heaven is again upon us and it's pointing at the promised Messiah. Now we have clarity Oh, there were promises, there were testimonies of grace, there were what God is doing, but when the promised Messiah comes, there is greater clarity. The New Testament celebrates this with passages like this, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Word, He came, He spoke, He communicated to us all of the testimony that we have in the Scripture that we call the Old Testament was about this One who is now the Word made flesh. He came in direct obedience to the promises of Scripture. He is dwelling among us. The silence ends. Galatians 4.4 puts it this way, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Silence shattered. Hope strengthened. 
But you know, one of my favorite testimonies to the shattering of this silence is a man named Simeon, a story told in Luke chapter 2. Simeon is this man in Jerusalem, and the text describes him as a righteous and devout man. But what Simeon is doing is he is waiting. He's waiting for, it says, the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the hope of the Messiah. So here is this man who is not, oh, that hasn't happened yet, and, and, and so don't worry about that. There's more pressing matters. But the pressing matter for him is to be waiting for the promised Messiah. And it says that the Spirit leads him, and, and there he is in the temple as the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in in Luke 2.27, the child Jesus. And the text goes on to tell us, He took the child in His arms and He blessed God and He said, Lord, now You are letting Your servant depart in peace according to Your words, for my eyes have seen Your salvation that You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for Your glory to Your people Israel. Here Simeon says, Here it is, I see. This is what I've been waiting for. This is the Word that God has brought us. Christ's birth brings clarity. Clarity to human history. Clarity to redemptive history. Clarity to you and me. Clarity that we cannot have apart from Him. That we will not have apart from Him. It's a German theologian of another era named Eric Sauer. And Eric Sauer said of the Incarnation, of all times, the Incarnation is the turning point. If you think about the the hinge of human history, you go from the, the, the age before Christ until the age when Christ has come. He's born. God took on human flesh and He did it to die and to be resurrected and He will one day return again. But the hinge point, the breaking of that silence is this is it. This is the King. This is the promised Messiah who was born. That hinge point of all human history. And in Titus, the Apostle Paul writes probably sometime after his first Roman imprisonment, And he writes to Titus. Titus is his true son in the faith. And he has sent Titus to Crete, this island community. And he is is serving the church there. And and Paul writes to him to, to help him know how to lead the church. How to lead the church with clarity. And he gives him some very practical advice. And they talk about what it means to, to have leaders, elders, pastors. He talks about what it means to mentor one another. But this passage that we're considering is what all else is hung upon. Paul says, oh, I, I want to help that church know how to function. I want to help them see clearly. Let me remind them that the grace of God has appeared. Let me remind them of the incarnation. Now, now before we get too far, 
we tend to think about other eras and we think, man, it's so hard now and it's so tough to minister now and think about what's going on in the culture and the, the government. And man, we've got it so hard and we romanticize other eras and we think, oh, they didn't have it so hard. Here is what the text itself says about the culture that Paul is equipping Titus to minister in in Crete. Titus chapter 1, verse 12 says this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Oh, if I could have only been there. It would have been so nice in Crete. Why do we do it? Why do we? It's always hard to serve Jesus in a fallen world. There are challenges in every culture. But we always have everything we need for life and godliness in every culture as well. Titus is facing incredible challenges. Challenges so much that, that, that this people was known so much for acting merely on their self-interest that the idea of acting on your self-interest was called creatizing. That it became a, a word that meant that you didn't care about other people, you cared about yourself. This is no panacea. I've had people say, oh, if I could have just been there when Jesus was walking the earth. Well, you do know they killed Him. And you do know that one of the closest to Him said, I do not know the man. It was hard then. It was hard in Crete for Titus. And it's hard for us. And we also have everything we need to do it faithfully. Don't do that. Don't romanticize other periods. Just focus on what God has for us. You see, He gave Titus here the key. He gives it to us. What is the key? For the grace of God has appeared. Now that phrase is not just to do with the first sermon you heard, bringing salvation for all people though it does, that is the heading for all of these clarifying realities that we're going to consider together. That is the foundation of it all. For the grace of God has appeared. Christ has come. This is the incarnation. He is fully God and fully man. He is with us. And this is the only way to gain real clarity. Jesus in the text is grace personified. He is here. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. The grace of God has appeared, first of all, bringing salvation for all people. Grace the Savior in verse 11. But in verse 12, that becomes grace the teacher. Or we could say the sanctifier. Now, far too often, we are guilty of domesticating the idea of grace. We think about grace, we think about salvation, uh, conversion at the beginning, we think about justification being declared righteous in God's sight. So grace is what we need to be saved, and it is. But we want to keep it over there in that box. That is not the way it works at all. Grace is what you need to take a breath at this very moment. Grace is what you need to stay in union with Christ. Grace is what you lean into to do anything you do that honors God. Uh, the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, the only obedience is the obedience of faith. 
Faith in what? The grace of God in Christ Jesus. You need faith for justification. Yes and amen. And you need faith. You need grace for sanctification as well. Yes and amen. The only way that you can obey God is the grace of God. God's unmerited favor washes over you at the moment of conversion, but it doesn't leave you. It changes you. It affects you. It reshapes you. Verses 11-14 are one long sentence in the Greek. It's a clause after clause and just strung together. We are not to think about these things even though we're looking at them separately as being pulled apart. No, for the grace of God has appeared. Bring salvation for all men. Teaching. It goes from one thing to the next. It's all tethered together. Look at with me at verse 12. We see we are educated by grace. Educated. I just want you to think with me for a moment about the first two words. Verse 12. Training us. The, the word translated training here is a Greek word from which we get the word pedagogy. A, a word used for education and talking about education. It's the idea of uh, synonyms would be like instructing, teaching, disciplining. I think maybe educating is the best sense of the word here. Educating us. For the grace of God has appeared, educating us. Grace is our teacher. Grace is the school that we go to that we never graduate from until the consummation of all things when we're removed from the very presence of sin. We spend the rest of our lives in the school of grace. We have a way of thinking that we thought apart from Christ. We are in Christ, but we are not fully given to Christ. We, we are in this progressive struggle. This progressive sanctification where God it will not leave us, but see us to the very end of it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here we are, not able to accept the things of the Spirit, not able to understand them, Then we come to faith in Christ and we spend the rest of our lives relearning life in light of grace. Relearning life in light of Jesus. Relearning life in light of the good news. I had somebody contact me and say, you know, I put something up and somebody said, you know, I don't believe in progressive sanctification. I'm fully sanctified right now. I bet if you ask their friends, neighbors, and relatives, they would believe for that person that sanctification is progressive. Right? You, you ask your um, spouse, Honey, do you think I'm fully sanctified? Oh, sure. Right? The, the, the idea is absurd. We still live in this fallen world and we struggle, but God is shaping us and He's preparing us for eternity. And we are through this process of rethinking everything in light of grace. This is why Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Did you hear? For I decided. I've committed myself to. There's no category that I'm going to talk to you about that I'm not going to talk to you about through the lens of Christ and Him crucified. 
He doesn't mean he tacks that language onto everything he says. He means the foundation of every topic he discusses is seen through this lens. He never moves on from it. He never moves away from it. Or then he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And it's an important word because oftentimes we think that the battleground is what we do. But what we do is a reflection of what we think, our thought life. What does it mean to take your thoughts captive to obey Christ? It means that you're putting stuff in there to think about. <laughs> that you're not allowing your mind just to run unbridled. That, that, that you're, you're putting things, I'm going to meditate on this, I'm going to think about this. This is going to shape the way I think about these things because this is true. This is what it means to be educated by grace. We have the tools and the resources in union with Christ indwelt by the Spirit of God to rethink all of life in light of Jesus Christ. The only way we can maintain clarity about anything in life is by centering the grace of God. And the grace of God is demonstrated in a powerful way in the incarnation. The incarnation is to captivate our thoughts and we are to think about the grace of christ as demonstrated in the incarnation about all things do you do you see that do you think about it i don't mean acknowledge it oh yeah jesus came and he was born baby in the manger god man i mean think about it think about it when someone has done something for you that you didn't deserve and, and they just did it asking nothing in return, and, and just it, it changes you. You're like, why, why would they do that? That, that? that makes me a different person that they would do that for me. Do you think about this? God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfection of heaven. God the Son comes. And to earth and takes on human flesh, fully God, fully man. Why? For us, for you, the incarnation, the baby in the manger, the God man who was in the womb of Mary, a virgin. This is what God has done. Think about it. See, that changes the way you think about yourself, other people, what's important. And most importantly, God. We spend the rest of our life doing that, by the way. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching this new way of thinking about the world. New in the sense of greater clarity. Built on the foundation of the Old Testament, properly understood. He's teaching many people who didn't properly understand it. How does he he provide clarity? Jesus keeps saying this. You have heard it said. But I say unto you, that never stops. We are always in the process of, oh, but I heard it said, but I thought. But he says unto me, but he calls me this way. That's the rest of our life. That's what it means to be educated by grace. If you aren't consistently changing the way you think about something because of your embracing of and meditating about and making gospel grace the foundation of your thought life, 
then it's because you're not making gospel grace the foundation of your thought life. Jesus never said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, and somebody said, oh yeah, I was right there with you all along. The way you're teaching us now is the way I've thought about everything all along. It doesn't happen. The, the natural mind is at odd. We have to learn to lean into grace. And let me just give you a suggestion. When you lie down at night and you're trying to go to sleep and you're in that, that state where you're trying to get relaxed, just tell yourself things that are true. Jesus came in the incarnation for me. The gospel is true. No matter what happened today, my life is rooted in good news. Not, not just truth, just basic truth. And what about when you get up in the morning before you're fully awake, before your feet hit the floor? I'm fully awake as soon as I wake up. Some of you maybe not so much, huh? We're all different in that way. If you put that stuff in there, by the way, that's true. And by the way, if you don't do something like that, then in your weakened moments, your thoughts are going to run places, but they're not going to run places good. You're going to think, well, that's not important. That was just thoughts running through my mind. No. You've got to be educated by grace. We have the Word. We have the Scripture. Jesus, the grace of God has appeared you see, none of us naturally have a grace worldview. We must consistently be educated by grace. And we must never domesticate grace, try to keep it over in a place. Well, there, there's two lessons he gives us here. Grace lesson one is negative. It's what to say no to. Look with me at verse 12. To renounce, that means repudiate, deny, disown. It's a conscious perfect. Purposeful action of the will means to turn away from. He's using it here in the way, in a way to describe repentance. Now it's it's used here to describe something that's ongoing, a lifestyle, a way of life, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Two things. Ungodliness. Ungodliness is just simply lack of reference to God. If you make a decision or you think about things without reference to God, then you are being ungodly. If you live your life without reverence for God, then you're being ungodly. There are times you may acknowledge God and then times you want to push God to the side. Whenever you try to think about life without thinking about God, you're being ungodly. It's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in the Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs says to not foundationally think about God is to be a fool. It's not name calling. It's a description of a person who wants to act like God is not there when they make their decisions or think about life when he is. It is a foolish thing to do. That is ungodliness. We all struggle with ungodliness. And the second thing here is worldly passions, worldly meaning things of this world. What is inherent to this world apart from God and the Gospel. Worldly passions. The word here is a word that means desires, longings, and it has an intensifier. It means over-passions, over-desires, over-longings, 
A lot of things are okay, but we long for them too much in an unhealthy way. And so this combination here, we are to renounce, we're to repudiate, we're to turn away from ungodliness, and we're to turn away from worldly passions. Sometimes described as sinful lust or cravings or fleshly longings or, or selfish ambition and includes anger and selfishness and, and unforgiveness and hatred and, and those sorts of things. You get the picture. Worldly passions is what I want without God and the Gospel. What I would want if the grace of God had not appeared. Think, think about the Old Testament. Think about bondage in Egypt. Oh God, get us out of here. God splits the waters, takes them across, gets them over to the other side. And as soon as they are a little bit hungry, they said, I wish we could go back to Egypt. Right? What are they doing? I'm not thinking about God and walling up that water. I'm just thinking about my belly right now. Ungodly, worldly passions. A desire right now that overwhelms God. That's what he's referring to here. This is the the school that we're being educated out of that on. And it is an ongoing reality. It's a a way of life. We're always being those people who are repenters. There is faith and repentance at the beginning of salvation. There is faith and repentance ongoing in our lives, not to gain salvation, but because we want to honor God. Now, Martin Luther, the... Protestant reformers talking about this text. And he, he, he says that you need to think about ungodliness as a tree. And the tree of ungodliness only produces fruits of worldly passion. A, the tree of ungodliness can't produce spiritual fruit. It can only produce worldly passions. And, and he calls ungodliness irreligion meaning disregard for the things of God, disregard for the people of God, just pushing all of that aside. Listen to his description here. Passions follow irreligion. That is, if you are unbelieving, it follows that you desire riches, popularity, and power. Those desires themselves are to be denied, not only the works. These two vices, irreligion and passions, continually war against Christians. We should learn to believe, but unbelief battles against us daily, and therefore daily we must resist. Thus our desires are not dead yet. And as Romans 7.23 points out, and then he says this, the flesh always craves the flattery of the world and always fears the harshness of the world, the death, death and the cross. Now that's a really powerful way of summing up in a very practical way what he's saying here. Just think about it. Without reference to God and the Gospel, we're always going to have reference to ourselves. And what we want apart from God and the Gospel is to be noticed and recognized and applauded. We want people to say, wow, you're something else. We want flattery. That's what we desire. And so it's why Jesus keeps saying, if you do something for the applause of men, when you get it, you've received your reward in full and nothing in the sight of God. See, when we crave the flattery, when we crave the applause of men, 
we are in a condition that is a symbolic reality of ungodliness and worldly passions. Right? Just think about it. Why do you want wealth and popularity and power and to be angry and not let go? Why do you want all of that? You want all of that for somebody to say, well, that's somebody important. That, that's, look at them. Look at what they can do. Look at what they have. Look at their abilities. You want flattery. Well, guess what he says? If you live like that, then what you'll get is fear. It's really powerful. Why? Well, because you know enough about you to know that you're not all of that. And you can't even live up to the flattery. And you are terrified of being exposed. Maybe somebody will find out I am not that good. I am not that competent. I am not that smart. I am not that wise. I am not that kind. And so the only place in which you can live on a daily basis is in fear. You see, this is why the grace of God is calling us to renounce these things. It's not just a to-do list. It's not just keeping us from something. The only thing it's keeping us from is the bondage of living in the chains of fear and calling us out to freedom. You see, what those things promise is not fear, but that's what they deliver. And so, ungodliness always produces worldly passions which always make us a people who are marked by fear. Here's a a very practical thing that you can do. Whatever you're thinking about doing, whatever, whatever you're thinking about thinking, whatever you're thinking about saying, whatever you're thinking about posting, whatever you're thinking about going, whatever you're thinking about somebody else, fill in the blank. Add to the end of that, in Jesus' name and for His glory. Do those things fit together? Is there harmony? I'm thinking about ripping that person apart and embarrassing them. In Jesus' name and for His glory. There's disharmony there. If there's disharmony there, renounce that. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Hold yourself accountable. This is education and grace. Hold yourself accountable to only do... Now, that doesn't mean you don't do hard things. Sometimes you would say, I'm going to have to go confront a person about something, some sin that is sabotaging their life in Jesus' name and for His glory. And those things are in perfect harmony. But it does mean that you're always asking the question. But, grace calls us not just to put off, but to put on. And that brings us to grace lesson number two. It's positive. How are we to conduct ourselves? Chapter 2, verse 12. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The present evil age. Whether it be Crete or Lexington or anywhere else. Notice those things. And to live self-controlled. It means to, to live sober. To live not intoxicated by something in the world that is controlling you. To live sober-minded. Uh, the, the word means sensible or reasonably. 
Now, we don't need to spend much time on this, right? Because we have a culture and a time and an age that's marked by sober-mindedness, reasonableness, carefulness, sensibleness. We, we don't have a time when that's, that's marked by people being intoxicated with every moment and, and fretting about everything like everything is the end of the world and easily distracted and, and, and fraught with anxiety over every situation that's not exactly the way they want because it, we don't live... Yes, we do. Fire up the computer later on today. What you will find is not sober-minded. What you will find is absolutely the opposite. People are ripped around by every single thing that comes by, who are riddled with anxiety, who treat things that are inconveniences as though they're crisis. One of my goals of parenting, one of my primary goals, is to be able to send my kid off when they leave the home and something to not go the way they want it to go and them to say, yeah, that's life, let's go. Press on. It's okay. Right? I tell my kids there's only four or five crises anybody has, hardly anybody has in their whole life. You have things you don't like. You have inconveniences. You just generally don't have crises. There are a few. My kid comes home and say, you know, they come home and they're all beat down. You say, well, what happened? Well, you know, Johnny said something unkind to me. So? That just means you're living in a world with other people. Why is that a big deal? I, the line I actually use, you know what they call that, don't you? Life. The problem is not little Johnny, I would say to them. The problem is you. Why are you so self-referential that somebody can control you just by saying something like that? I hope they say it again tomorrow. So you get a chance to work on this. That's not a crisis that somebody said something unkind to you. Just life. Press on. Be sober-minded. Be be somebody who's reasonable. Be somebody who's not self-centered. Who doesn't expect all of life to conform to them, your desires, your wants, your longings about circumstances. No. Not intoxicated by your own desires. Not intoxicated about the movements out there. Charles Haddon Spurgeon great English Baptist pastor, one of my heroes, he he said this, he said, have you noticed that in every generation the world is about to end? He said, have you noticed that in every single generation the sky is falling? And then he says, but what have we to do with the times but to serve God in them? You know what? Every single election of my lifetime has been the most important election of our lifetimes. And the next election will be the most important election of our lifetimes. And by the way, elections are important. But they are not ultimate. A sober-minded person can see the difference. A sober-minded person realizes that we are tethered to a story and involved in something that is ultimate that nothing can stop and so why would I allow anything below that 
to hurt my focus and ability to serve here. No. All of this stuff that we face and go through is important. But it's not ultimate. And if you think that it is ultimate, you are intoxicated by the cares of the world. Cast all your cares upon him, Peter says, for he cares for you. Self-control. Upright. It means righteously. Live righteously. Uh, justly. The, the word used here always has the idea of toward other people. Honestly toward other people. Justly toward your treatment of others. And then the idea of godly. It's the opposite of ungodliness. If ungodliness is, is not thinking about things in, with, with God as the reference point, it's not reverencing God, it's not worshiping God, then godliness is thinking about God as the reference point of all of life. It's reverencing God in all that you do, and it's worshiping God no matter what. Godliness. Now, that's what we're called to. The grace of God has appeared educating us about, did you get it? Ourselves. Self-control or sober-mindedness. Others. Upright. Righteous behavior. Just behavior toward others. And God. Godly lives. Lives with Him as the reference point. So, what, what do you need to live in the world effectively? What if I told you I could teach you how to rightly relate to yourself, others, and God? What else do you need? Many of us don't even think about the responsibility we have to rightly relate to ourselves. Not just our actions, but our thoughts. We have to think about the gospel for us first. But we don't abandon these things when we think about others. And we certainly, most importantly, put God at the center of everything. Do you see this? This is, this is lesson number two of, of, of this grace education that we must give ourselves. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives. The opposite of, of being out of control and being frantic and, and, and saying, I don't care about what others think. I want my way. And, 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 and being captured by the moment. The opposite of all of that. But we need to say this before we stop. When we talk about saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions, when we talk about self-control and uprightness and godly living, we are not talking about a plan of self-will where we just do it. You know, one of my favorite skits, a guy named Bob Newhart, some of you know that name, if you don't, he was an actor, and he did a, did a skit where he's a counselor, he's a psychologist and somebody makes an appointment with him and they say you know uh i just i'm happy to meet with you today and you know he said what's the problem well you know i'm scared i'm going to be buried alive and he says stop it that'll be fifty dollars so what do you mean you didn't tell me anything yes i did i said stop it that'll be fifty dollars well well i need more than that he said well okay that's weird stop it has anybody ever buried you alive before? No. Well, then stop it. He actually ends up saying, stop it or I'm going to bury you alive. But, <laughs> but that's not the way it works. This is not legalism. You just don't say, stop it. That's not the way these things work. You don't just say, 
Stop it with the ungodliness. No, there has to be a value. There has to be something that you set your mind on that is so captivating that it pulls you away from ungodliness and worldly passions. And that doesn't mean that in light of this, you don't say, stop it. You do. But you don't have the ability to do this apart from this. And so the school of grace that we're in is setting our mind on the grace of God that has appeared. Thinking about it. Ordering our lives based on it. You see, grace is our school and grace is our teacher and grace is the key that opens the door and grace is the engine that drives us. The incarnation of Christ is transformative. It ought to bring you joy. And then you say, because of the grace of God that has appeared, I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to do this. Why? Because I'm a great person? Because I have been transformed by grace. Heard a story, uh, it was quite a while ago, it was a story about a man who was shot by a criminal. The criminal went to prison. And um, the guy who got shot was glad he went to prison. He testified against him to help put him in prison. But then he asked himself a question. He said, I've got a choice. Should I respond to this just the way I want to? Or what would it look like to honor God and to reflect the grace of God in this situation? Well, he decided, I'm going to start writing him. I'm going to start encouraging him. I'm going to start visiting him. By the way, he says, you know, I'm going to hate him in Jesus' name and for his glory. I'm going to write letters to him and encourage him in Jesus' name and for his glory. Yeah. So he did it. He started visiting. Shared Christ with him. Led him to Christ. Before the guy has gotten out of prison, they've essentially become best friends. And now they run a business together. Why? Because he renounced ungodliness and worldly passions? Because he lived self-controlled, upright, and godly? Now there's a danger in sharing a story like that with you. Most of us aren't going to get shot. So we can leave it at the hypothetical. What would I do if somebody shot me? Well, to be honest with you, if I had a gun, I might shoot by it. And that guy might have as well. And I'd want them to go to jail. And that guy wanted them to go to jail. But would we ask ourselves the question about what God would want? Well, you don't have to get shot. You know, because you have all kinds of things that are far less significant than that that you're dealing with every day. And the simple question is, can I do it in Jesus' name and for His glory? What choices are you making? See, the, the tremendous thing about that story isn't that guy. It's that he knew he had the resources to respond in a way other than what his immediate gut reaction would be. And so do you. You and I have everything we need. You know, 
I wonder what you're learning in the school of grace. I wonder how you'll live out this week the lesson that you learn in the school of grace. And I wonder if the most amazing thing to you is that the grace of God has appeared. And I wonder if you know that that alone gives you the tools here and now to grow in grace. Let's pray. Lord, help us to apply the truth of your word. Help us to think about the reality that in Christ, your grace has appeared. And Lord, make us a people who spend our lives amazed by grace. And those here today who aren't in Christ, don't understand, have questions, I pray, Lord, that they would cry out to you for you have never turned one away who has turned to you in faith. And Lord, I pray that all of us would spend this time when we're setting our minds on the grace of God appearing to preach the gospel and to grow in grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.